Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Sarah from New Society Publishers. At New Society, we are committed to ensuring that the health and diversity of the environment is conserved for the benefit of future generations. Find out more about how we put people and planet first at newsociety.com or on any of your favorite social media channels. Are you the owner or promotions manager for a regenerative business or organization looking to get your message out to a larger audience? Finding your target audience for regenerative products and services can be tough, especially while the movement is still in its infancy and awareness around the importance of ethical business still has a long way to go. If you want to tap into a network of informed and motivated people with strong environmental and community ethics who vote with their purchases, then you've come to the right place. The Abundant Edge podcast now has more than 30,000 monthly listeners around the world and is growing fast. These are listeners who are actively involved in the regeneration of our planet and are enthusiastically supporting businesses and projects that reflect their priorities. We now offer competitive sponsorship packages for single episodes and discounted rates for multiple episodes, social media campaigns, promotional videos, and more. The best part is that all your investment goes straight into making this podcast the best resource for regenerative skills education that it can be. Because of our commitment to the integrity of our message and our affiliations, this offer is only open to businesses and organizations that are as committed to regenerative work as we are. If this sounds like a good fit for you, go to the show notes for this episode to fill out the collaborator application form. We look forward to helping you reach your highest potential. All right, welcome everybody. One of the most common concerns that I hear from the regenerative community is how someone can make a good living while working directly on projects that regenerate our planet. While there are many different ways to do this, it seems that the dominant narrative in business tells us that the most profitable job prospects are those that are destroying our natural world. Exploitative petroleum companies post record profits while unethical banking practices pay out massive bonuses and manufacturing covers our landscapes in trash. But I know a growing number of people who are pioneering new options for ecological work and making a good wage in the process. Now, though this is rarely ever the primary motivation to do what they're passionate about, it's important to know that you don't have to compromise a life of holistic abundance to dedicate your time to regenerative work. And that's why I'll be focusing in the upcoming weeks on profitable businesses that are doing just that. Specifically, I'll be speaking to leaders who are offering solutions to conscious and ecological businesses that help them break through their financial constraints and into profitability in more than just a monetary way. To start this series off, I had the pleasure of connecting to a fellow Minnesotan and one of my heroes in ecosystem regeneration, Dan Halsey of Southwoods Ecosystem Ecological Design. Now, Dan has worked all over the world as a designer and consultant and has been a co-founder of the Permaculture Research Institute for Cold Climates, the Natural Capital Plant Database, and most recently, United Designers Permaculture Design Cooperative. With experience working in Central America, Western and Southern Africa, the Iberian Peninsula, and all over North America from Alaska to the Southern Mainland, Dan's perspective on patterns and local cultural consideration is truly impressive. 
Now, in this interview, we discuss the implications of the destruction that humans are having on the planet, which stretch far beyond carbon emissions and climate change. Dan also talks about some of the details and observations from his many projects. We then switch to focus on the business aspect of running an ecological design and consultation firm. Dan and I go over the importance of asking the right questions and how important it is to have a design criteria list for gathering information and recording observations. We also go over everything from attracting clients, the advantages and challenges of collaboration, profiles of the organizations that he's helped to start, and much more. Now there's one section of the interview where Dan shares his screen to show me parts of the functionality of the Natural Capital Plant database that's hard to understand over audio. But I've uploaded the video to the show notes for this episode at AbundantEdge.com so you can watch and follow along. So definitely grab your notebooks for this one and I'll turn things over to Daniel. Hey, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to finally connect with you. I've been a fan of your work for a long time. Well, thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here and talk to you about uh, the design process and all the things going on in permaculture and ecological design. Excellent. Well, yeah, I've got tons of questions that I'd love to ask you. So what do you say we just jump right in? Sounds great. All right. So, Daniel, could you first tell our listeners a little bit about your personal background and how you got inspired to start to work in ecological design? Right. Well, actually, like with most most things, uh, I, I tell people it's kind of following the energy uh, and following opportunity in life where things go. And my permaculture story, ecological design, like I do now, started long time ago, but not actually in permaculture. Didn't even know about it at the time. So uh, for 25 years, I was a food photographer and package designer, uh, doing graphic design. A lot of food photography, large format, back in the analog days, lots of film, then did digital. And uh, that was going quite well. Uh, what got me into permaculture was during that time, um, I got uh, sepsis, which is toxic shock. Don't know where it came from. Uh, it's kind of a blood infection. It's really bad news. Uh, I didn't know it at the time. I learned a lot about it afterwards because uh, you don't have a lot of time to study something when you're in the middle of it. So... Uh, went in the hospital, lost about 25 pounds in eight days. I was about 35, really good shape though. I was a downhill ski coach. I was like really good shape, beat that, um, fortunately. And, but then had to learn what food was. And I was, I was referred to, uh, Dr. Kevin Wand, who's a osteopath, homeopath doctor locally or at the time. And the nurse said, you need to talk to this guy. He knows what will fix you up and what you need. And I met with him and I learned what food actually was. He said, because they give you like Cipro, Ciproflax, and all these things to kill off these bugs, but they also kill off all the good bugs. And so his idea was, you know, if you're just starting out, we got to get your digestive system back, get things going. You first need to learn what food is and you need to start eating better. Uh, Cause I was just eating the general popular culture, typical stuff at the time. Yeah. Like so many of us. Yeah. Um, and of course I found out what food cost when you start buying good food. That was a big deal. Also, it's like, wow, uh, go to the natural food store, start buying uh, wholesome foods. And on one hand it's expensive. On the other hand, you eat so much less of it because you don't have to eat so much of it. Um, you're what I found fuller faster. So I started eating better and then I started growing my own food and tomatoes, peppers, things like that, things that are easy. I was living in uh, suburbia and then I met a permaculture person, uh, uh, Paula Westmoreland at the Green Expo in St. Paul. This is about 2003. And what's amazing is I had seen Permaculture Magazine. I was reading Permaculture Magazine. 
And then all of a sudden, I ran into one other person who knew what permaculture was. Within a couple of years, we had critical mass of about 80 people in PRI cold climate. That's where I learned what permaculture was, got my PDC, very much got into it. Uh, it was excellent. About that time, I had an opportunity to buy a little farm, a little hobby farm, about 15 miles away, where I'm sitting right now. And uh, had an excellent opportunity then to exercise all these things I was learning in permaculture, but I still have my photo studio here. And then in 2006, uh, they were looking for a place for a food forest project. I volunteered. And we also had the luck of having Jeff Lawton come for two weeks uh, in the county here doing presentations in different areas and then also doing a workshop here where we put in our food forest. And that was where it kind of all started uh, in 2006. Now, that was great. Photography was great. Everything was going well. Money's coming in. Um, but the thing that got me into ecological design was uh, for an industry, which was I was into marketing, which was just bulletproof. Uh, as you can imagine, package design, every time the economy changes, packages change, right? Atkins in, Atkins out, you name it. So we were doing pretty good until that whole subprime sort of thing happened in 2008-9, uh, where everybody was under so much stress, corporations, things like that. My clients were laying off everybody, and really the work dried up quickly. And I was teaching photography at a college to bring in some extra cash. And they wanted me to get a master's degree in photography after shooting for 25 years. And I said, eh. So I went to the University of Minnesota, was checking that out until I realized, you know what? I think I'm going to study horticulture. I think I'm going to go fulfill my permaculture interests and finish up my old bachelor's from uh, years ago. And then I also uh, did my master's. And my master's program was developing an ecological design system using permaculture principles and practices for what was being taught as landscape design. So I took the landscape design courses, which is a lot of you know, ornamentals and aesthetics, things like that. And I just flipped it on its head and I put in the new priorities as permaculture would have it. And that is ecological functions, plant guilds, polycultures, things like that. And that's really where the design process I'm using today came from. And it's of course evolved quite a bit since then. But that was really the process of getting into this was understanding the patterns as we learned in permaculture in the beginning, kind of seeing the patterns. And we'll talk about this, I'm sure more about the patterns in climate and weather, but really understanding that I think I need to move from pop culture, pop business into this more ecological business and a more ecological lifestyle. And that's what's pretty much supported me since then. You know, we're going basically on 11 years since that big shift uh, traveled places I never thought I'd ever go. I was a big, you know, big fan of Canada being in Minnesota, you know, five, six years ago. And since then doing ecological design, finding out, wow, this is really important and people need permaculture principles and ethics all over the world, but they also need ecological design that's understandable and tailored to their needs. Yeah. And in a way that they can really relate to. And I think it's fantastic that so many of the ways that you got inspired to pursue this can be related to by so many people like you started first by connecting with healthier food and then finding a community that really supported this getting connected with other people who knew more and then when you found opportunities to pursue it more professionally and integrate some of the skills that you had previously is really when it sounds like it took off for you as a career path right it really did because I, I had the background of graphic design and the aesthetics that are required and I found of course, when I was doing package design and food photography, it's about what we call the easy read. Uh, people need to look at it, know what it is, understand it quickly, and it has to be simple. 
Uh, and we have another uh, term that I use a lot, which is called visual noise, to reduce the things that aren't helping the communication and emphasize the things that communicate better, which uh, sounds simple, but it's actually, you know, it is, can be simple once you know the principles of doing that. So those principles of communicating concepts and communicating principles of a design, say, really came from my package design experience and limiting myself to the color palette that does that, the icons that we're very big on now, like with United Designers and using Adobe Illustrator, to very much simplify our designs, the absolute necessity of information that needs to be on it, and reducing what we call the visual noise. And that's part of my course too, is uh, explaining to people and seeing examples of how we can reduce that. Because especially with our clients, you know, we may be staring at the same design for hours and hours and it affects us too. So after a while, you don't see anything anymore because you have all this fatigue in your eyes. And we're trying to kind of fix that. So in the process of doing our design, we really reduce the opportunities for your eyes to have to shift, especially in colors, bright different colors, things like that. So when we look at, like I'm looking at my little woodland out here, the number of greens that are out there and browns and tones are actually quite limited and makes it that much easier to look at as opposed to I was looking at the blues and oranges and you know uh, there are blue trees sort of we call them that but really in our design work everything's a shade of green and earth tones and that really helps people communicate on their level of what they understand and it makes it easier for them to understand what the design is all about. Man I love hearing how people of many different types of disciplines and areas of study find a way to bring their uh, their expertise and their perspectives into these types of regenerative skills uh, that seemingly wouldn't have a whole lot to do with one another until you find this sort of creative overlap. And it's to me one of the most exciting things about the growing community that's gotten behind regenerative pursuits. Now, you mentioned before about going into some of the, the details about our climate situation right now. I mean, it seems fairly well understood by, by most people who are tuned into any sort of news outlets at all that you know, the rising levels of CO2 are starting to warm the planet. But when you start to get into it, there are actually much more pressing and extreme manifestations that are not directly related to rises in CO2 levels. And I'm talking about things like mass extinction, loss of species and diversity, their habitats, and uh, big disruptions in the water cycle that, that turn into desertification. Can you tell me about some of the information that you've gathered in your study and in your practice that really drives home the urgency of some of the other effects of climate change and uh, basically the impact that we're having on our ecology. Sure. Well, um, recently, and so we went to the Global, uh, Global Repair Conference that was in Port Townsend, Oregon, uh, or Washington, excuse me, uh, was there and got a chance to talk to some of my friends, people I've known for a long time and get the details uh, Tom Garreau was there speaking. He's a PhD from Harvard. Uh, one of his books back here, um, the geotherapy that I have, he talks about the actual science, the real science about climate change and the responses of the ecological systems. And as we are visual and observation being one of those great things in permaculture, we're looking for patterns. We're making notes of things. Uh, if you've seen some of the changes in the species and how they're reacting to the changes in the ecology, that's what's kind of scary. Um, over, you know, over thousands of years of change, species can adapt, I mean, it, but it's changing over decades that it just doesn't happen. They can't adapt that quickly. So uh, one of the things I noticed, we're working on a project in Poland, and 
here's one example of how species are adapting and some can be successful that way. So uh, in this Polish estuary, it's quite large. Uh, the temperature of the water has changed and things in the water have changed due to climate change and of course agriculture, things like that. So a lot of the mussels that were the food for a duck, the greater scop, we call it the bluebill, uh, goes by other names. But this duck is the deepest diving duck and it eats uh, mussels and mollusks. Uh, and so the zebra mussel is what it was now shifting to. The old food source that it had has basically died off, but the invasive zebra mussel had moved in because it has the warmer weather. And now this duck has actually changed its food from what was and now is gone to a new kind of food source, which is pretty amazing and very adaptable that they've been able to do that. Uh, one thing they found very striking too, I was lucky enough to go to uh, Sitka, Alaska on a, on, a, on a cruise on one of the small research ships for National Geographic. It's kind of a combination research, combination of a, a general cruise, uh, what do you call it, ecotourism type of thing for about eight days. And uh, some of the things we were learning on that ship, uh, there are about 50 of us and the naturalists and biologists around there, uh, killer whales there are two types of orcas, those that eat fish and those that eat meat. I did not know this. Uh, and they're different, and they, they're different packs, different pods, things like that. What has been, uh, for the first time ever, uh, they've documented that orcas are killing blue whales, or specifically, there's one blue whale. And if you understand like how alligators and other animals, turtles sometimes, they'll take their prey and they'll bury it in the bottom of the ocean or hold it down to go back and get it later, right? To extend their food source. Wow. Orcas were seen to kill a whale and then bring it to the bottom and bury it in the ocean for later food. That's nothing that's ever been seen before. Is that a situation where now the animals are actually responding to scarcity? Um, it would seem so. And there are other examples of that where some animals are actually adapting. And as much as we do see, of course, having been by the glaciers and icebergs, that's just the tip of the iceberg as opposed to what other animals reptiles, whatever, are adapting to this change. On the other hand, um, the really, and I think it, we owe it uh, to ourselves, and if you haven't seen it, Our Planet by David Attenborough, I think it's on Netflix, if not other places. That's an amazing series. Oh my gosh. Uh, David Attenborough, he pulls no punches on climate change and what's going on, all the different species there. It is hard to watch, but at least we owe it to the walruses, at least, to watch this video because the walruses are in total disarray, total chaos, because they've lost their ice, they've lost where they actually rest and, and sun. Uh, they're crowded on beaches, hundreds of thousands of them at a time where there's no room for them. And I won't be a spoiler, but to see what they actually, how they respond and what they do is just devastating, right? Uh, the mm -hmm. fact that they're finding whales beached on, like in the German coast, right? That are basically died from plastic. And this came up on, in, our, in our discussions too on the boat, is that if you see two, what does that mean? If you see two dead whales on an isolated beach somewhere, not all of them beach, right? How many of sank course. to the bottom? So every time we see something, you have to realize that, wow, if, what am I not seeing? And we're good at that in permaculture. We're looking for these patterns. So if we see these animals responding this way, we need to then open our eyes and look much closer at all the whether it's bees, butterflies, birds, all those kinds of things, what's going on, because these patterns are very important to us to understand what's going on, even for our own survival. 
Yeah, absolutely. These larger patterns are key to understanding how we can interact in a way or start to reverse some of the damage that's been done. But it also relates specifically into the way that we as designers and one of my favorite things about the the content that you put out there and the message is integrating this in with a holistic system as a design business. Let's talk now about raising the standard specifically for design and what are some of the most notable challenges that you see other ecological designers facing? Right. So in the U.S., it's, it's fairly straightforward. Uh, if you want information, you can find it. A lot of the data that we need in order to do our base maps, our site assessments, things like that. We have an eight-page data table right now. We call it for United Designers um, that we share, which are basically, it's, it's a Word doc with four columns. One is, here are the questions. Here's where you find the answers. The third one is where you put the answers. And the fourth one is recommendations. There's eight pages of this data. And the biggest problem, I think, that we have, especially in design, is knowing what the questions are. And if you don't know what to do, you haven't asked enough questions. So knowing what the questions are, getting the answers for those, gives our subconscious the time and the ability to come up with the solutions. And that's where insight comes in the design. You have to read tons and tons of information, all sorts of things. It's like I learned, uh, like in art school, learn everything, then forget it. You know, just learn, forget it, because it'll still be back there working its way in your subconscious. And when you need a solution, that insight will come forward. So get in the information, knowing what the questions are, and then also having a very specific process. So we have a process list. It's like three pages, chronological, all the things we have to do in order to get the information, starting with the base map, the data table, uh, client interviews, things like that. And even if the information doesn't apply, when I'm in the Southwest or like Southern Texas and we're looking for growing degree days and then we're looking for chilling days for, you know, apple fruit and things like that. Well, it really chilling days in South, you know, Southern Texas. Well, still, we want to find that information because it might be important. And even these things that we think aren't really important, if it exists somewhere, we get it in there because it really kind of sculpts the uh, environment for us and gives us an idea of what we're working with. So a real challenge here is still getting the data, getting it organized, doing a very good base map, doing all the testing, and then also, it's, a, it's funny, a lot of challenges I could list, remembering that you have to go in with a sense of awe and ignorance, and that's really true. Um, I have to go into my jobs with nothing in my tool belt, right? Nothing ready to go, no preconceived notions, and that's actually very freeing to go to some other country or some other state and you have to just wipe your brain out and start doing the research and know that your solutions have to apply to that place. Not everybody needs a Berman Swale. Actually, very few places I've worked on have done Berman Swales, right? Not every place needs to be key-lined, but that's something that needs to be assessed and if it comes up, absolutely. Now, when you do those systems, any of these tools that we have in permaculture and design, it has to be tailored exactly to that place exactly to the slope, the aspect, the type of soil that's there. There is no one thing that you do everywhere the same way. Everything needs to be tailored just because, just like the clothing you're gonna wear, just like the seasons, everything changes and we need to adapt to the design to that. So having all these documents, and it takes some time, I just got back from Albuquerque yesterday, five days there, uh, working on a restaurant that has a farm attached to it, which is, which is really, really great opportunities there. 
but we have to be really careful with the kind of soils they have and the integration that they have with their customers that actually are walking out on the farm, the perception of what's going on in the farm, and also the, the difference between production systems and like the polycultures and ecological systems. Somehow we do a blend in there. Of course, permaculture works great for that. We're a combination of production, agriculture, and the ecological systems which support that. And we try to bring those two things together. So getting overwhelmed is a big problem with these jobs. And just like everybody else, it might be two in the morning, you'll wake up and go, what have I just got myself into? Um, and that's happened a couple of times. But I know if you have a process and you have a list of questions, and I have to do it every time to remind myself, hit that list. Uh, and one last thing I'll yeah, say there's is- there's no shortcuts. There, there really isn't. You, you're gonna really get yourself in a situation if you try to jump anything or make any kind of assumptions. And you have to dig holes, you have to do a, little, a lot of research on the land, because just because what you're seeing on the surface may not be what it's down deep. I have a couple of examples of that I could tell you about where, well, we see sand, so obviously, you know, the water is just gonna infiltrate really fast until the wind blows, and we found that about three inches under that sand is compacted sand, it was like concrete. They had a hard pan in a sand field, which was just amazing. And so that's another thing we had to think about uh, with working. So understanding all the systems, getting your list down and following that. Oh, and, and what we also have is now, because I teach this as a graduate class at the University of Minnesota, it's a 15 week semester. Uh, we have a rubric for that, which is basically, these are all the expectations for the design. So we took the design process with all the items on there and we turned it into an Excel spreadsheet and you get to go through and you got to check off each one of those. And as you can imagine, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger as we add more details. Like when you get into soil sciences and soil tests, all that information that we want to find out or make sure we at least looked at it. Now, I've become obsessed with something that you mentioned earlier, and that's the questions that you ask during the design process. Um, not only doing interviews like this one through the podcast, but also working directly with clients to help identify their needs, the conditions and the parameters that we're working with. And I've noticed that the questions that you ask really frame the information that you're going to gather. And though you may be looking for the same things, if you ask the same question, even just in a slightly different way, it can really change the way that that information is conveyed or gathered. And so my question to you is, what are some of the main questions? I know you said you've got a document available online to go through all of this, but among that list, what are some of the questions that have been most impactful or changed the perspective or the way that you gather information? Well, in many cases, um, like I was saying, in the United States, we go online and we can find anything we want. That is not true, as most things in the rest of the world. Uh, uh, some of the insight I got, I was working with Neil Bertrando, and we were, we were actually in Senegal. And I said, you know, Neil, I think we're the anomaly. Everywhere I'm going in the world seems to be much more similar than we, to themselves than to us. Um, Everywhere else in the world is much more similar in their agriculture, their building, their structures, things like that, especially. Mm, yeah, that's been true in my experience for sure. Yeah. And we're the strange ones. We're the odd. And so there comes to, you know, kind of a lot of, uh, oh, you might say, uh, uh, I have this whole thing about being a perpetrator in some of the things going on, but I'm also trying to figure out, okay, I'm a perpetrator, but I'm also trying to fix this. How do I balance these things living as I do, where I live, trying not to have the effect on the rest of the world. But anyway, we have great resources here. You go to another country, you go to a place like we were in Senegal, 
there are no schools, there, are, there is no written language where we're working, how do you get the information that you need to get, right? Basically, you just start having conversations and you ask questions. And when we were teaching a class there last fall, um, through Matter, uh, uh, which is a Matter organization, which is in the Twin Cities, it's an NGO, we did a class there on Gorgi Jeng's farm. He's actually an NBA basketball player for the Timberwolves. He has a farm in Senegal. So we did a class there at his agricultural center for four days. But the class was not about teaching. It was about finding out and discovery. So we have to ask questions in context, right? It's not about, okay, what's the, what, you're going to ask them what the nitrogen in, what's the organic material in your soil going to do anything? No, you actually first have to find out what do they think soil is? You know, how are they, act, what are they working and work basically from their context, not from ours. And so the whole beginning of that four day course was asking questions about what was it 30 years ago, 20 years ago? What were you growing then? And we got a great response from people. And then asking them about different parts of the country. And what do they do there? And how does that work? And after a while, they start seeing the patterns. We're just giving terminology to the patterns that they already know. This is already information that they have. When we were in Haiti, we found an old uh, chalkboard. And we were working there. And the first thing we did, we found an old chalkboard, all busted up, laid it on the floor, found some chalk. And we asked the people to draw. We, you know, who's here who's a good artist? Draw Haiti, you know, the best that you can. Where are the mountains? Where are the rivers? And they were basically teaching themselves and us what's going on in the island there. And then where do things grow? Why do they grow there? Where do the winds come from? Where do the storms come from? And just like we're doing a sector map, we had this big chalkboard filled with all sorts of drawings and arrows and everything. And the people that knew the information were teaching it to the people that didn't know. And then, they're, of course, they're arguing about different things and about the rivers and the fish and things like that. But at the same time, we're getting informed as to what's going on in the climate and what's going on with the agriculture. Um, we were in uh, Haiti also at, at a different time. We were learning about some citrus disease that they had and what was going on with the trees and trying to figure out what that problem was. And through the translators and through people that spoke English also in French, finding out, oh, okay, what was the pattern? How did it work? And eventually, of course, they couldn't deal with it. They didn't have the resource to do it, so they had to, to pull all their trees out. We're taking that information, then we come back to the United States and we ask people that know these things so that we can go back and inform them. So it's all about asking questions all the time. Now, what those questions are have to be tailored, of course, basically to the education of the people who are there. And you might have to do some education first for, before they can answer the questions. Uh, on the other hand, I've been so amazed, you go to these countries that some people will call illiterate, which bugs me, or third world or developing, which also bugs me. You go there and ask them, and they know everything about the plants. Which one is used for toothaches? Which one is done for this? We were going through a woodland area, and everybody is grabbing leaves and nuts and berries as we're going through this area because they're all collecting and foraging for all these material because they all know what it works. So if they have all this indigenous knowledge, what are we there for, right? We're there, Absolutely. you know, we're just there to help them and answer their questions. You know, what else can we do? Let's look at the soil here. Uh, the four day class that we did in Senegal, the only thing we were teaching them over that four days for them to decide, of course, was soil temperature, the depth and type of soil they have and the benefits of mulching. That's the only thing that we got out of that four days. But that was stellar because they decided through the, the demonstrations that we did, the little trials that we did, different ways of watering, digging holes, and all of a sudden they were saying, oh yeah, 
we need to do this. That makes so much sense, right? And so we're not preaching anything. We're all discovering it at the same time. And I think that's much more effective. Well, of course, when it's their decision and a few of them will adopt it, it's probably more likely that they'll adopt it than us coming and saying, here, spend a ton more calories doing it this way. You should get something better. That's, it's not how it really works in a lot of these countries. Somebody has to spend the calories and risk all that energy in order to get the benefit. That is such an important observation, especially when working with cultures that are not your original ones or when you're going into another environment or context, there is this sort of pervasive stereotype of people going in and, and acting as sort of saviors or bringing people out of what we consider to be underdeveloped. And I'm equally uh, perturbed by those those terms that you mentioned earlier, underdeveloped or third world or things like that, because the knowledge is definitely there. It's possibly just not the knowledge that we have traditionally prioritized or given value to in our culture. And let's be honest, so many aspects of our culture and the way that we have started to domineer our environments are the reason why these overarching defects and disconnection to natural systems are pervasive all around the world. And uh, many times the, the perspectives that we have to offer are just relating the indigenous knowledge, the connection to nature that they inherently have and are strength, frankly much stronger than we have uh, in this part of the overdeveloped world, um, as we you know call the global West, is relating it to these sort of unhealthy economic models that would allow them to participate and remove themselves further from the connection that they have, which is much better than ours. And I'm very glad that you mentioned this. It's, it's a, it's a co-learning experience. And uh, if both parties come into it hoping to, to share and to ask the questions that allow the discovery from from the addition of information and perspectives that each side brings, I have certainly found in my experience that uh, that creates a much more lasting effect and much more likely that the, the conclusions come out of those interactions are actually going to be implemented rather than, as I've seen in so many other places, especially with NGO and nonprofit models, um, when projects are implemented or kind of forced upon the people uh, where you're working, as soon as the funding or the support or the maintenance from outside dries up, the projects are abandoned because they were not initiated by the people who they actually affect. There's many, many, many examples of that in, in every country. Um, forests that were put in, people paid to put them in. As soon as the trees were even harvestable, they got harvested and they weren't taken care of. Why? Because nobody was paid to take care of them. Um, and that was, that was the logic. So, and, and kind of to extend to what you're saying too, so there is indigenous knowledge, there's local knowledge and cultural knowledge. That's great. All of that is passed down. It's, it, what the great thing about it is it doesn't change knowledge of plants, how they grow, what they look like for the most part, that is so, that's what's great about horticulture and permaculture is that the way this oak tree grows now is the way it's always grown and probably will always grow relative to where it's located in, in a climate or uh, its environment, right? So you have the cultural practices though, that's where we run into problems. And that's here in the United States too. Cultural practices are basically like traditional practices uh, where we've always done it this way. Uh, we don't want to mess with it because this is what has worked. And I, I had this conversation uh, earlier in the week, and I've had it in many places where people want to put in native plants. This is my example. Uh, and one place I was working, native plants was the key. We just want to do native plants. I said, great. Sounds wonderful. Love it, love it, love it. Show me a native soil. Show me the actual ecology that existed 
when that native plant was here. If that's gone, you're not going to have the native plants that existed. This whole soil regime, this whole ecology has changed. If you want to get that back, we have to work on the functional plants with the fun ecological functions that can help bring that soil back so you can have those natives back if you want. Otherwise, the slate is different. The ecology is different. And so we have to start differently. And it's the same thing with farming. Now, I have to read a lot more about this, but I was just in Albuquerque. And in these fields off the Rio Grande, they do flood irrigation. And I went out there when I arrived with my penetrometer. You know, it tells you how many square uh, pound, uh, PSI, pounds per square inch, it takes to push through the soil. And at a certain uh, PSI, it won't go through. And that tells you when you have compaction. So you push this down the soil. You can hear it. You can feel it. And you can even see it on the rod when it comes out of the ground, what's going on underground with that. So I go out in this field, and it's like concrete. I can't put it on. And then they're going to come the next day I hear and flood irrigate this huge field. They just turn open these big like manhole covers and the water just comes out because it's national, uh, natural water pressure from the canals, from the Rio Grande. And by the way, this is a 300-year-old system that the Spanish started. And that history right there would be worth a lot of reading and study. So anyway, this very old system, they have people that this was the first, uh, you might say, governance in the whole United States was governing the water system in the Rio Grande Valley here or Albuquerque and what it was, all the different towns that were down there. So anyway, they flood irrigate this. And I'm thinking, okay, from everything I've ever heard, flood irrigation is bad. We tried to stop that in Haiti. We're trying to stop this in other areas by doing channeling, by doing drip irrigation, by doing, you know, spot watering, things like that, because flood irrigation just isn't going to work. So they flood irrigate it. And I'm thinking, wow, there's like four or five inches of water on this field. Tomorrow, there's going to be three or four inches of water on this field. And I don't know what's going on with this. I think I, I'm saying I'm questioning this a lot to myself and a little bit with my client saying, I'm not quite sure this is the way to go. So anyway, I go out the next day, all the water is gone, absolutely gone. I take the penetrometer, it goes three feet into the ground like butter. It was just amazing. And then I pull it out and it's actually cold from all the water that infiltrated. So the soil type that they have there, which is a sandy loam, that crust on the top was really very, very hard. But as soon as the water hit it, it seems like all that water just infiltrated, and this was an alfalfa field, infiltrated very deep. So I'm going to have to really look at that because, of course, not wanting to judge on anything and not having to be, okay, absolutely, flood irrigation is bad. Now all of a sudden it's like, wow, this is amazing. Simple energy, gravity-fed, about once or twice a month they get allowed to flood this field, and the water just goes way into the ground. So there's something about this. Because I was thinking, wow, we're going to have to do a subsoiler key lining on here, something to get the water in the ground. And I was totally off base in my assumptions on that point. So there is a cultural practice that's been going on for hundreds of years that I was questioning. But in the sense, it's like, wow, this is amazing. So now I have to whole, I have to rethink flood irrigation and what is the situation that you have to be careful of. Now, if that was heavy clay, that probably, like we were, we were in Haiti, that's an issue because the clay comes to the top, it, it just really is not really good for the soil. But for this silty loam, uh, sandy loam, it actually worked perfectly. And I was very, very impressed with that. So uh, cultural practices, as opposed to cultural knowledge, sometimes things are done because they've always been done. And cultural practices are kind of the hardest thing to change. But it takes one or two people to take the calories and the energy to do it and try it. And if all of a sudden they succeed, then everybody will be on it. Everybody's watching everybody else in every country, every little village that you're in. 
So that's the thing we want to change. But we also have to watch. And I think, and I've said this in Haiti too, you kind of have to be there. And I'm thinking you have to be there for like a year, a whole year or a number of seasons to see how things work. You can't just go there for a couple of weeks and judge stuff, right? And that's very difficult. But Bill Mollison would say that you buy a property, you sit on it for a year and watch and observe everything. So it's kind of, that's hard part with the designing too is I've got, you know, maybe three months to get ready, a couple months to get ready to go do my research and maybe two weeks there to do it. I wish I could be there for a year in every place and just live it and see what's going on and then be much more informed and probably much more accepted too. I, I love stories like that, especially since like it's very difficult to accept the humility that those types of realizations bring. But just like you said, like the, the intricacies, the nuances of nature uh, are constantly surprising me as well, just like you mentioned. And there's never a, uh, an end to what you can learn or understand or the assumptions that you can break when you really observe and take the time. And I mean, it's, it's really helped me come to some personal conclusions because I've been, you know, designing and consulting with clients and projects around the world myself and had, you know, much like you, like sort of limited times to interact with the, the communities and the ecosystems in which uh, I've been called in to work on. And it's really helped me to realize that I would be much more effective as a participant in these projects, as a contributor in the long term, if I really want to see any solutions come. And it's, it's, it's not really supported by the angle in which <laughs> a lot of work is is promoted right now where you bring someone in you find solutions you implement them and then you you leave but especially when you're working with living systems like this dynamic systems it's a participation it's a co-evolution and it's really brought me to think that i need to to change the approach that i've had over the years because i've been fortunate that some of my recommendations and designs have worked as well as they have, but um, it's almost at this point, in my understanding, a, a matter of luck and it's so much to the credit of the people who work on it for the longer term rather than you know my own knowledge or understanding of something because I've made just as large a mistakes having assumptions or coming in with preconceived notions like you mentioned before. Yeah, yeah. Well, a funny example is to talk about humility. Uh, when Neil and I were in Senegal, we were doing uh, like the banana circles because they have these sheds, the water's coming off. When it does rain, we're trying to direct it to these banana circles and things like that. So we digging them, putting organic material in and making them, kind of sculpting the land to do it. The guys got it. They, you know, they figured out what we were doing. We came back six months later and they had torn out everything that we had put in and put in their own stuff, uh, which was just great. They had papayas going and they had... Uh, a cottersol, a soursop, all these other things going in this system. And it's like, it's a structure. It still works. They just decided they wanted to grow something else. Absolutely. You know, maybe we just didn't ask enough questions. They understood the system. And yes, it was working. The water was going in these, the holes there, the pits, organic material was there. They were putting in some manure that they're finding. Absolutely. So you have to allow these people, wherever you go, your, these people, your clients, uh, your customers, uh, you're advocating for them. You have to let them put their spin on it and either fail or adjust it however they want so they can experiment, you know, and learn themselves. A lot of this, you know, I'm really, it is all about education, you know, and understanding the variabilities. I'm getting educated every time I do a project. I'm trying to educate people. Here's what I've seen. Here are the stories from these different places. But you have to give people in every situation an opportunity to learn, decide, 
and to see what the variabilities are so they, so they can basically take ownership of it and not just us coming in and saying, look, I saw this in a book. We're going to do this because it was in this book, right? They saw the structure and they say, oh, I see how this works, but I'm going to grow something different, which is absolutely the best way to go. And so with that observation, what do you think most designers in, in your observation or your experience sort of missing when creating functional designs that truly meet the needs of a piece of land and its owners or stewards? Um, wow. Uh, missing. So my, uh, I have limited experience, you might say, with seeing other people's work. Uh, I have to be honest. Uh, I try to keep up with things, social media, Facebook, all that kind of stuff that's going on. Um, I don't see enough long-term, you know, you see when it first goes in, hey, here's our food forest. Uh, the first six months, you never see anything again. Um, straw bale houses, things like that. You see everything going in, but you don't actually get to see it five, 10 years later. Some of it obviously is very new. Um, so there are a couple of things that, was missing, uh, that were missing for me. Uh, and this is when I started getting into ecological restoration uh, with John Liu, ecosystem restoration camps, things like that was what they're calling uh, the four returns from common land. So, and I thought that was very important when we're doing this ecological design on the properties, right? Is that there has to be much more than just the harvest. There also needs to be some kind of economic benefit from them, especially wherever they are. Not everybody can make your own shoes and clothing. They're gonna have to buy something. So there is some kind of economic system. So as much as there's subsistence in all of this, which we really want, they also have to have something of value that they can, so they can be part of the economic system locally in their village or in the region so they can get their needs met that way. So there also has to be a, a social aspect to that. And that comes with, I think, creativity and change and talking to people. And that's about organizing everybody. Um, uh, Mark Beiruthi from Lebanon works with people in Lebanon and building farmer co-ops. And he was actually with us in Senegal for the class explaining how the co-ops work with the farmers in Lebanon. And it was really fascinating coming together. These are our crops. This is what we're growing. How can we do this together for, for standards of quality and things like that? And then find a market so that we all can work together. So that kind of social bond of farmers working together, subsistence farmers or whatever, that's very important. And that also needs to be worked into our designs. How does it work with the, with the whole community? Are there more people that can get involved with this? There's the spiritual side of this also. Um, and then, of course, there's the ecological benefit of growing systems or basically growing food. And like I like to say, I have our main points. And I might say we have a lot of main points, but one of them is we're always trying to build the natural capital. That's a big word, a phrase for me, right? The soils need to be better. The nutrients need to be better. The water needs to be held better in the soil. Everything needs to improve by building the natural capital because that's the actual wealth of land is all the nutrients and the ecological systems on it and its ability to carry food or carry animals, which brings us to the carrying capacity. That term is used, it's, a, it's called the K in biological terms, but there's a carrying capacity to every ecological system. As we raise the natural capital, boom, 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 carrying capacity goes up. Richer soils, holds more water, bigger harvest. More harvest, more organic material, better soils, bigger harvest. More animals can go on this pasture now because we keep building more soil. We raise the natural capital. We improve the soil, uh, the nutrient load on that, maybe better plants, different plant seeds, things like that for the cattle. So raising the natural capital means raising the carrying capacity. And that's a big part of the design is an expectation 
that when we leave or when they start putting in the design, like it's with permaculture in general, it doesn't take a lot of inputs, but it needs to constantly be regenerating or like Alana Bliss was saying the other day, just generating, right? Maybe not regenerative, but just generative. It just needs to generate constantly nutrient cycles like every forest does, every jungle, everywhere in the tropics, even in the desert, things build and build over time at different rates. So that's what our designs need to make sure that we have is a nutrient cycling system that's inherent in the design so that the soils are better every year, the water holding capacity is better every year, and then the animals and the health of the, of the property is better every year. And it sounds to me like that is inextricably linked with uh, the resilience of those systems. Like you may be able to have a higher carrying capacity for humans by wiping out some of the diversity, cultivating things as monocrops and increasing the calories available to one species. But in turn, you completely deplete the resiliency of that system. You create it to be dependent on outside inputs. And as soon as those dry up, it can't sustain itself and the carrying capacity then dips majorly. And so there's a certain amount of um, species diversity within a resilient system that is absolutely necessary for the carrying capacity for humans, as most people kind of think of it in the long term, how many people can be sustained by that. Um, it's not necessarily just how much resource we can create available for us, but how much those resources can regenerate themselves in a sustainable and a resilient way in the long term. Absolutely. And, and being resilient means to be able to respond to disturbance. Of course. Changes. Uh, and like people who have cattle, they have cold season grasses, warm season grasses, wet season grasses, dry season grasses. They know the importance of a diverse grasses and forbs and things in the field for the cattle. The only way that it can support the cattle is they have to be ready for every kind of disturbance, every kind of extreme weather, weather situation so that these cattle can actually graze and they can have a profit and they can put on uh, weight, right? Well, we need to really look at that on our properties and we're doing the design too, is the diversity means that when it is hot or we have dry weather, we have plants that actually are fine with that. It's within their tolerance range, if not an expectation in order to do that. And then we need something in a wet cold season when we might, other plants might have fungus or there might be disease or when the humidity is really high, other plants aren't affected by that. And that's where diversity comes in. I've been experimenting with this uh, in an extreme sort of way with pistachios. I've never grown pistachios and I'm working with the graces of my clients on this. But pistachios need a very warm, dry, long, dry season, right? Now the tree will survive and like a lot of plants that you can grow, like here we can have apricots or we can have different things, but we'll probably not get a harvest maybe once every five years when the weather is perfect and the frost was at a certain date and we had all these conditions were just right. But then when you do, you get this huge bumper crop. So the same thing in these areas where we know the pistachios will survive if they have a drought, if they have a long, hot, dry summer, guess what tree is really going to rally in that situation? It's going to be the pistachios. Now this mm -hmm. needs a lot of refinement and we're playing with this in Albuquerque. We're playing with this in Maryland of all places so that when everything is under stress, you also have plants that actually love that kind of weather, and that's where diversity comes in. Uh, fire is the same thing. You know, we have these disturbances, and now we've had a lot of fire in the news on the West Coast, actually all around the world, and understanding that we need a diverse uh, kinds of trees 
diverse kinds of plants that actually reduce or resist flames or reduce going on fire, as opposed to, say, in Portugal, where they had a monoculture eucalyptus, um, which my friends now in California are finding that they're just cutting them down because eucalyptus is a nasty fire tree. Oh, yeah, I found that while I was there. That was so, so, so big a part of the narrative that, you know, they planted them for specific reasons back then. But now that the fire season and the extent of the area that it affects is much larger, it's one of the most dangerous trees that you could have mature in those types of areas. The, the bark peels off it like newspaper on fire and flies through the air. And so if you have any wind and it burns very, very hot and like the ones we saw in Portugal, the, burn, the trees that burn fully, that actually burned into the ground and burned the roots. So there are all these holes wow. in the ground. Of course, maybe a very hard way of making biochar, but uh, all these roots actually burned into the ground. So you can imagine the ground being now sterilized around these roots because they're burning at super high temperatures with all the oil that's in these trees. So uh, kind of back to your question. So diversity in all cases and always possible because it's an ecological system that we're trying to make that fits our system. And like I like to say in our design process and site assessment is that we will be imprinted by the land. We're not imprinting on the land. We need to change our tastes. We need to change our expectation of the food and adapt our lifestyle to where we live like everybody else does in the rest of the world over thousands and tens of thousands of years. They've adapted and created their culture and their lifestyle. Everybody from the Inuit, right? Uh, to the people in Senegal, to the people in Haiti, the indigenous people have built cultures by adapting their life to the situation that they're in. And they've rallied mm -hmm. for that. There is no reason to disparage people who are living subsistence lifestyles because they've learned to adapt and they are actually doing so much less damage to the land than people who have learned to extract it and take more from it uh, by imprinting what they think is necessary for a lifestyle. Absolutely. Now here, let's let's take a little change in direction for a second and focus a little bit on the business side of uh, running a design firm. Let's talk about, first of all, some of the challenges on the business side, especially when it comes to finding clients. Right. So in my case, I was pretty lucky because I, I was a freelance photographer, designer uh, for 25 years, uh, independent, you might say a lone wolf much of the time doing that. So learning about relationships and promoting my work, uh, what I want to show people in order to get the projects. That was great in a commercial setting. In an ecological setting, and especially in permaculture and ecological design, it's a little bit harder. It's not a local feel. You really have to spread out and be willing to travel uh, and be willing to take some risks in doing work and elsewhere by understanding the actual principles. Like I was talking about having a process. It doesn't matter where I go because I have this process like a lot of us do of site assessment. I just need to be humble and find out the information. So you kind of have to spread out where you can work. Otherwise, if you're just working locally, you're kind of limiting yourself on the availability of type of work that you can do. And you're gonna just generally do what everybody else does. Now, of course, I don't wanna put down general landscaping. I have a lot of friends in permaculture, that's what they do. And they influence everybody in suburbia and urban areas, bringing in permaculture and ecological design into the ornamental designs of the aesthetic designs that they're doing on land. It's funny to hear about the surprising plants that they'll just put them in the landscape and they look beautiful and then they'll get a call from the owner going, hey, there's these great berries on these plants. What, do we, what, what are those for? And he's like, oh, you eat those. Oh, and by the way, you can eat all these other ones too for this part of the, part of the design. Nice, kind of subversive ecological landscaping. 
a little bit of gentle guerrilla landscaping. Uh, so in a business sense, you really have to decide what you want to do and then figure out where that market is. And that's with any kind of art. It's really any kind of business. What are you happy with? And then try to make that work and get that out there. Um, I would, in a sense, try to be, especially when we have more and more coming, people coming into the field, is find a specialty. Find something that you can be extreme about and that you can be known for. That's a way to get hired and to be seen. Now, in my case, unashamedly, I have about five Facebook pages. I got three web page, websites. Uh, I'm involved with a number of organizations because I want to get my material out there as much as possible. Every time I do a design, every time I'm doing something interesting or find something new, let everybody know because it's an opportunity to see the graphics that I really like doing and the style that I like to show people in order to move that kind of standard that I'm looking for to move that forward. So promoting yourself with what you do, uh, a website, of course, is needed. A very good website that's well done. I just redid uh, southwoodcenter.com, Marushka Kierkegaard, who is one of our United Designers in the Netherlands. Uh, she was an interior designer. She's a permaculture and ecological designer now. Interesting change, right? Um, and of course, she, she was just saying, Dan, you got to fix this website. My website was like, it's old school, I have to admit. And she just took it apart and put it back together, and I really love it, the southwoodcenter.com. It's just design work, focusing on what I do as opposed to a lot of other things. And I think that really was the key is focus on your best type of work, what you can be an expert at, put all your time into that, whether it's mushrooms or water systems or like Brad Lancaster, right? It takes time, but be known for what is successful. And it might be mushrooms. It might be uh, cheeses or it might be ecological anything, anything you can find out that you might want to do as a product or as a system. Be very good at that. Think of your marketing, think of your reputation, and then your brand. And that's very important. Have a name. Now, Southwoods here was the name of our property. It actually came from a previous business, but I kind of liked it, so I kept it. Now that I have it, I can't really change it. So it's very important to know what the name of your company is going to be so that you can be seen. I'm also a graphic designer, so logos are very important to me in the presence of my being able to see my work especially at conferences and things like that, they can recognize my style. Um, now, marketing yourself, of course, is very important. It's like any business, and once you're doing any kind of business, and it doesn't matter if you're in permaculture, or it doesn't matter what you're doing, business practices are universal. Good business practices cannot change, whether you're using QuickBooks, whatever kind of accounting system, getting yourself a tax ID, getting licensed, getting all these things taken care of. It's like the infrastructure of your farm. We can do all these fancy things in the landscape, but if your electrical system is bad and your well isn't good and your driveway is full of potholes, that doesn't really help getting everything else work. So getting a business consultant, maybe some classes uh, about how to run a business is very good. Plus you have all these people online now, they're trying to help you do that. Some very good online courses now with business structure. And with the work that I'm gonna do in my courses coming up, we do talk about business, but we're mostly focusing on ecological design using Illustrator or the advanced technical drawing skills. I really like what you mentioned there, and it's definitely been my experience that would echo that. Like, as like I was not uh, educated in business, I, I didn't, I didn't even uh, go through the normal sort of university path of formal education. And as I was starting to put together my services and offer them to clients. Um, 
as soon as I started to get fancy or start to um, kind of, I don't know, get a little bit too niche, I found that the problems that were holding me back were always rooted in the fundamentals, the things that, you know, like are structural, that were either broken or not fully well thought out. And even to this day, as I start to move into different offerings and different types of content and services that I've offered through my own company, whenever I hit a snag, I always find that the root problem of that is just the basics. I, you know, I didn't bother to um, put in systems for the accounting. I, I, you know, overlooked something that was very, very basic. And I think that's fantastic advice for anybody getting into any type of business is really put your efforts into establishing a base, a really solid foundation that you can then expand onto the, uh, onto other offerings and products or services. Now, in your own experience with so many different types of businesses and collaborations that you've done, what have been some of the challenges and the rewards of collaboration and not just going it on your own? Even though you started as a freelancer, you've started to work a lot with other organizations and people. Yeah, yeah. Um, So the joy of doing design is like anything else, going to see a movie, camping, whatever it is, is to work with other people and share it with other people. So uh, a, a shared experience is twice as fun, right? You also are sharing the responsibility and the anxiety uh, and the stress uh, of that work. So, uh, and one of the things that I have to get better at, and I'm, I'm pretty good at it generally speaking, but more and more need to jump on it faster, is delegating and bringing in partners in design to help share the experience. Now, there are many cases where that's obvious. When I'm working in another country, uh, say the project that we have in Poland that I'm working on, immediately I'm trying to find somebody close by that understands, if not speaks the language, uh, that can help me work with that so they can fill in the blanks. I think it's important to know, and I think for myself especially, it's design and it's design process, but it needs to be informed by the correct content. So I, need, I could say design a magazine, have the fantastic design, but if the content is bad and the articles are bad, it's not written well, right? That's not going to work. It's not going to sell. So I need to be informed for the design by the quality information. And that means partnering with people that work. Now, in the case in Poland, it was great because they're working with Waruszka Kierkegaard uh, in the Netherlands. And uh, she's Danish. She lived up on, she uh, grew up near the ocean. She understood estuaries and what's going on in the, U- in the Northern Europe with that. A lot of the plants and the symbols and was greatly helping me information. Plus she speaks the languages in order to do the data mining to find out this information. So in an international sense, it's required that you find somebody local. And it's pretty easy to do in permaculture circles on many levels or through references. But just say, uh, even in the biome that you might be, especially when I'm going to drylands, and I've mentioned Neil Bertrando before, as soon as I hit drylands, if I'm in Senegal or if I went to Haiti or anywhere else, I have a dryland person and that's Neil. And Neil's got it down because he lives in Reno, which is not necessarily super dry, but it's dry, right? And he's studied that. Like I said about being extreme and having a specialty. So the more I work with him in these different other dry areas, the better he gets, the more informed he gets, and we both win on that. And then we also have a nice little design to show other people and promote each other. So finding people right off the bat that are experts in the area that you're working or understand that the best... Like the tropics, when I was doing some work in Costa Rica, Nick Tittle was in Thailand, emailed him and said, hey, I got this and this and this going on. Can you tell me the polycultures that, that what would work and help us with that? 
and he sent me about 17 different tropical polycultures that we just had to massage a little bit for working in Costa Rica, and we still use those today in the tropics, right? Talk about saving me so much time, and I learned and accelerated my learning process, but it is very important to get the right content because, like I say, it's the word design. That's what I do, but my design needs to be informed by good information. Now, the other part of doing that, too, is there are skills and, say, the data mining and building the base map that is good work, and I actually enjoy that. But on these larger projects, I need to start delegating, and this is how we create better designers and bring up people in design. I need to start delegating those foundational tasks to other people. I love data mining, going on the Internet, getting those endorphins flying, finding out all sorts of information, going off and living tangents all the time is a lot of fun but I need other people to do that now so I can focus on the concepts and the bigger problems and trying to develop the different strategies that we're going to use and also get more work. So the more people I have and the more working and the faster we get this done, now our bigger or broader scope of information that we can get faster, we also have a deeper understanding and a lot more experience in these different areas, which even then gets us more work. So one of my goals, and as you might know with United Designers, is to do a lot more team design, get three or four people on every project that we're doing and then bring in other people at the time and those that want to enter and start being designers also bring them in and say okay we start with data mining here's the table go nuts if you have any questions let us know but that information is very important to us then if somebody wants to work in illustrator and start doing base maps absolutely here's our here's our data mining information here's our aerials maybe we went with the drone or had somebody do the drone maps for us Maybe Ben Missimer in Mississippi, one of our partners, took all the dem information from the drones and made us these beautiful topographic maps and all sorts of other things. We bring that information and then we hand that off to the second person, say, great, get that base map done. We're using it and get it in the style. And then after that works and all these things start coming in, and just like we're doing right now, we do Zoom meetings. And so we're all talking, sharing screens, here's what's going on. And let me tell you, having three or four brains on one project is exponentially better than just this one, right? It just, the stress about it and having to understand all these things, we need all these people thinking in parallel about the same solution so we can come up with better strategies. Yeah, the amount of exchange of ideas and things that you would never have come to or or imagined on your own, I've always found is so much larger and so much worth even some of the hassles in interpersonal differences and the struggles of collaboration. It's really worth it for that extra um, mind and expertise that gives perspective on the the project at large, but also the interactions even with clients, um, aspects on ways to improve the the services offered and the business aspect. It's it's always worth it. Um, how have you sort of put in systems to increase or ensure that communication is maintained? That um, open and honest communication is facilitated or promoted because I've always found in my case that that's where the breakdown can happen in these collaborations. Right. Yeah. Well, we have to have a really good understanding with each other. We do have, we have memorandums of understanding. We have the contracts type of situation and our understanding is this is the contract. This is our understanding. If it isn't on here, it doesn't exist. So let's make sure we cover our bases on that. The other agreement we have too, which is kind of a handshake sort of thing, is that the project is what needs to get done well. Let's focus on that. If we have problems, and we're gonna have misunderstandings, all of that, but we're focusing on doing the project well, so we all have a really nice 
you know, another feather in our hat. We have a better understanding and the client gets what they need. So any kind of misunderstandings, let's put those aside. Let's know that they're going to happen. They're going to happen. And then let's do it better next time. So communication is really important. So we have, we have Google Docs, of course. Uh, so when we're doing our site assessment table, that's in Google Word or Google Doc, right? That's on there so everybody can see what the information is. There's somebody else or we're all filling it in, which is what I love about that. Our plant lists are on the Google Sheets. So as we're adding plants, everybody can see that too. Then uh, we use Dropbox for all the design work. And Dropbox, unfortunately, usually can't work simultaneous on it yet. But all the, uh, the our, uh, uh, PDF information, all the contracts, all the process sheets, all those things are in folders and ready to go. So content-wise, everybody has access to that in the design team. Then we're doing these Zooms and just talking and discussing about a lot of things. And what really helps with that too is we all have stories and we all have experiences and that makes it fun, right? We have anecdotes about, well, I did this here and did this there. And the more work that we do, the more stories we can uh, tell is the better. But it really is about a team attitude and the fact that we are fallible and we're gonna make mistakes. And as much as we're trying to keep ego out of this, somebody might feel bad or something didn't get so uh, told well. And now when we're working in cross cultures, we have people in Spain or the Netherlands, right? Or people in South Africa, things get misunderstood. And then we have to be very careful how we say things, right? We have to have a, the same understanding of what we're talking about. And we have some misunderstandings based on terminology or using colloquialisms that are, you know, phrases that are used in these countries that the other people aren't going to understand. So it really is about the client first. And this has been just like it was in, in my other career. It was about the job. We'll argue about things after that's done, but let's just suck it up. We need to get this done. Sorry about that. You know, let's move forward. And then we'll talk about that and make sure that this doesn't happen again, because it's always a learning experience. Uh, one of the last things I'll say about that too, is the phrase is everybody's got to eat. Uh, there are no free meal or free jobs. There's no free information. We have to be very upfront and that's worked out fairly well. I'll just say, here's the budget I have. Here's how much money I have for you. Can you do this? Right. And with Neil or with other people, Rarushka, with Sarah, Ben, Regina, um, who else is in there? Uh, uh, Jessica Robertson in Canada, right? Or Ramis. We just say, here's the money I got for this part of the project. Are you cool with that? And if they say yes, boom, we're done. Whatever it takes them to get it done, that's their deal. That's not my deal. We have just set out what the deliverables are, what the expectation is, and they just need to get that done. If it takes them eight hours to do it or 18 hours, that's up to them. And that's, I kind of like that flat fee. So the faster that you get at something, the more money you make. And that's kind of how it would work. People want to talk about like hourly wages and things like that. I have a real hard time with that. You know, Ben works really hard on doing the dem files and getting the topography done. He's working illustrator. Great. He does plant symbols for me and all that kind of stuff. And I basically have to say a budget for that. And if he cranks those out in three or four hours or in an evening, fantastic. Right. I still got what I wanted and we negotiated well and understand that. So it's the, the money part is really the hardest part. It's like, it's always the hardest part. Even what we're charging people is hard, right? And how to make sense of that. There's no calculation for it. 168 or 60 acre project, you know, it might be 15 grand, you know, another one might be five. Why? A lot of reasons why there's this huge disparity in size, right? But how do you decide what that is? Uh, that's different. But also I have to say, 
that's why you bring in other people even when you're doing that start your group early and then use that as a discussion point what should we charge what do you think we should do and now everybody's on right from the get-go i love these observations and i'm learning so much in this process and i'm wondering now if you could give me some direct examples of how these things have sort of played out and some of the the overall visions of three of the main organizations that you work with and i'm referring to the pri cold climate institute the United Designers, and Natural Capital Plant Database. Let's work through those one by one if you're open to it. And starting with uh, the Permaculture Research Institute for Cold Climate. How did you get started with that? Where is it going? And sort of what it, what is that overall vision? What are you trying to accomplish with it? Right. So there's kind of been some uh, transition. And, and as things change, I have found uh, the eco- talk about succession. Um, I've found that in nonprofit organizations, especially in urban settings where people are involved with ecological systems, say the garden communities, things like that. So if you can remember, and some people might, what life was like in 2000, almost 20 years ago, right? In 2003, what was going on then? What was happening? Permaculture was barely known, especially in the Twin Cities. Like I said, there's about when I was just reading about it and it wasn't until 2003 that I actually met somebody that was thinking the same way. So PRI cold climate came out of this, basically this critical mass of people that were bumping into each other. And then all of a sudden said, let's get organized. Let's start doing this. And it went from five to six to 12 to 24 to then 80 people over the years. So that was the the inception of permaculture in the Minneapolis, St. Paul area, the Twin Cities area. And it grew and it grew and it grew. And it did a lot of training. It did a lot of classes. It was about the only organization doing that. Well, just imagine after 10 years of training all these people and do these all the classes, all these offshoots and other organizations that would start up, right? People would leave. They're getting, they're working for schools. They're working for other, other, other nonprofit, things like that. There was another organization called Gardening Matters. Started way, way back when there wasn't a lot of community gardening. It wasn't organized. And they were like the big dog. They were getting everybody organized. They had the funding coming in and they got a huge number of community gardens started. At the same time, schools and community gardens started also teaching this at the same time, right? So the problem kind of comes in then is after a while, PRI Cold Climate is now created its own competition, right? It's actually fulfilled, you know, its destiny of what it was trying to do. And in some way, every nonprofit's goal should be to become obsolete, right? If you have uh, an action that you're trying to take and you're trying to fix the world or you're trying to do something and make it happen, well, sooner or later, I would think it does happen and you're not needed anymore. You've been successful. Ideally, yeah. Ideally, right. Otherwise, you're not being very effective. Right. So all these people, we had 80 members. We did 24 people in the PDC, all these people going out. And everybody, what's amazing with PRI Cold Climate, that people started getting busy and doing their work and basically spread out. And PRI Cold Climate now has kind of taken a a hiatus and people are off doing the work. They're doing a lot less education, a lot less programs because all these people are best, like myself, I'm just off doing other things. Now, what that did move into, I have personally transitioned to was PRI USA. So PRI USA is the national organization Permaculture Research Institute here. And Niels and that, Ramos, uh, Owen Hablatzel, um, and so we're the directors of that. So that's more of a national nonprofit organization that I'm helping run too, and kind of 
PRI cold climate has kind of left that. And basically it's just sitting there waiting for who knows something to happen. It actually is fine. There's a lot, there's like three or four other organizations now doing PDCs that kind of came from that organization. And that's kind of the natural progression with that. So uh, PRI USA, we are a nonprofit organization and we're actually a fiscal agent. So if people want to start projects, start permaculture, food forest, whatever it might be, we act as the fiscal agent so that their donors could donate the money to us as a nonprofit and then we fund the profit so that their donors get the tax write-off. That's what that's all about. Mm. And then the people put in the project, they never touch the money. They don't have to pay the taxes. We do all of that. We do all the accounting. So the project gets done, but the donors get a tax write-off and the project people get the funds that they need in order to get that done. That is very important. Now let's move to United Designers, which is a for-profit enterprise and is a collection of designers located all over the world. You've talked a lot about some of the projects that y'all have done together. Tell me how that vision came together and where you're at currently. Sure. So there's a conversation I was having with somebody, gee, it might have been four or five years ago, uh, about something that was missing in permaculture and kind of an underlying tone. Um, there are a lot of uh, uh, classes, courses, PDC, and the underlying tone of permaculture a lot has been about the independent person, right? The homesteader, uh, the person going out and being self-sufficient and all of that. There wasn't a lot of teamwork, right? There's social permaculture and there's, there's uh, economics and things like that, but there, basically it wasn't a lot about working together as a team. And so after people were doing their PDCs and after people were getting out, it was like, how can we get people working together as teams? And then get their work done and learn from each other and come together uh, and do better work. And so the idea with United Designers right from the beginning was let's every time there's a project, let's bring in at least one to two other people. And I've been trying to do that. Every time I get a job, I need to bring at least one to two other people to help me with it. And then they will also and will work with each other. So the way United Designers started was I'm getting projects because it basically is my idea and I got to like model it, of course is getting the projects and then finding people that can work with me on that. And then they will also hire me. So the only way to be part of United Designers is to actually have the job. But the jobs and the paying projects are what fund the education. And that's what I think is a new model. Uh, learning permaculture, do the PDC, marketing it out there, getting a project, but then understanding that guess what? It's not all about you. You don't have to do this by yourself. The next level of your permaculture education, design education, is going to be a real income generating opportunity that you can use to bring yourself to a higher level by working with all these other people that are already doing it. So that's how United Designers work. Either we hire you because you have a specialty or you hire us because you're looking for help getting the work done. As soon as either one of those happen, you're in and you're basically staff. You're part of United Designers. It's not a club. There's no membership fees, anything like that. It's all based on actual work. And part of that is like a phrase I have. If you don't have any skin in the game, it's not going to work. Everybody has to have a risk involved. Everybody has to have the reputation on the line in order to make this work seriously and know that it needs to be done well. Then all of our best work comes from that. So it's about you know, working as a team and then having our education funded by actual real projects. I really like the motivation for that and how you've structured it. I find really inspiring. Now, before we go too long on that one, can you talk about the Natural Capital Plant Database, how that came about and what you aim to achieve with that organization? Sure. So I talked about Paula Westmoreland, uh, who was my mentor. 
uh, first person I met in permaculture. So about that same time, she was a, a programmer, a computer programmer, I think, a designer. At that time, she got into permaculture in 1999, was working on doing her own landscape company. And she found that these plant databases that were out there for landscape did not have enough information for the ecological type of design work we wanted to do. It was all about aesthetics, color, height, texture, those kinds of things, you know, where they would grow, all was great. But there was nothing in there for ecological function because permaculture is about guilds, right? It's about things working together, polycultures. None of that existed in these databases. So she got a grant and she got a bunch of people together and decided we need to take all this information and rebuild it as a plant database. And so Pierre, as she did actually, and then people from the PRI Cold Climate got together. It's about 12 people doing in, uh, information, data collection, putting this together. Basically, I think it was in Excel, and then it went into Access, uh, and then it went into some uh, relational database uh, software online in order to make it work. It was in Wiki, I think, the first iteration of that. Um, and so we had a, a web developer to put this together and all this information, and they got in the first set of plants was 1,300 plants, mostly with the upper Midwest, mostly from local. Um, but you could put in your information, and if I could share a screen with you, would that be okay? Yeah, go ahead. Let's see if that works. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Good way of putting it. Let's see. If, let's see if that works. I'm going to uh, open this and come to here. Here we are. Okay. You see that? Okay. Yep, I can see it. Now, unfortunately, because this is over the audio, I'm not going to be able to share this during the podcast, but I will clip this video and include it in the show notes um, on the website below this. So anybody who's listening right now, you can log into AbundantEdge.com, find the episode and find this at the bottom of that page uh, for those of you who want to see what Dan was just explaining. Okay, so this is the, the natural capital plant database I've already signed in. And uh, there's information about permaculture, polyculture designs about Paula and myself and how it started, uh, membership levels that we have. But the, the great information is the database. We have uh, almost 2,400 plants now, so almost 1,000 more than we had uh, some years ago. And everything in here is by, uh, ordered by um, common name for us, but the scientific name is what pretty much everybody goes by. So we have, each plant has a data table, so in this case, you see the list. There's natural plants associates, so those are plants that grow together. And like if we go down there to alder, there are 19 different polycultures that green alder is part of. And I believe that's a nitrogen fixer. So if I click on one of these, like, like cat claw acacia, this is the information that Paula was going for, and then we've expanded on over the years to give people what they need to know. So at the top of this page, you'll see all the plant detail. Uh, the name, scientific name, all that kind of information, characteristics, the size, the soil type that it needs, moisture, root type, depth, all those kind, every kind of information we can find about the plant's characteristics, we put it there. Then we have the tolerances, what kind of zones, soil pH it needs, drud, uh, excuse me, drought, flower, uh, flood, salt, soil compaction, all those things. And then the behaviors, growing seasons, right? All the information that we wanna know about a plant. But even more than that, what are all the human uses? So cat claw acacia is pretty great. It's a dryland plant. It's kind of a desert plant. Uh, but all the human uses, but then the ecological functions, and that's the thing that we are going for on the plant database. Is So you can search the database for all the nitrogen fixers, as this is one. Maybe you need domestic animal forage, or maybe you need wildlife habitat. You can go to the search page, 
put in your growing zone, your soil type, any kind of sunlight restrictions there might be on there, if you floods once in a while, whatever that is, and then click on you want all the wildlife habitat plants, and it will give you a list that has that. And so this is what the plant database does. This is what I work with. This is what all our, our uh, subscribers work with. We have 5,000 users in 70 countries, actually over 5,000. We have about 600 paid users. All this information is free unless you want to do basically a search for plants. And that's $30 a year right now. And this is the page for doing that. It's very simple. Put in, if you want to just go by plant type, you can do that. Otherwise, put in your, your growing zone, the pH, and then your soil types, and any other information, if it, it's a droughty area, if it's animal resistance you're looking for. Um, and just like in permaculture, if we want to partition the soil, maybe I'm just looking for taproot plants, right? Maybe I'm looking for tubers or fibrous deep-rooted plants or fibrous shallow plants. You can also do that. Sometimes when we're working with a windbreak, we need fast-growing trees, so I will use that sort of growth rate. But you can put that information in the top, then come to the bottom and say, I just want all the food plants that have my growing zone and my, my ecological conditions, and you'll get all the plants that you can eat that will come with that. Or I'll turn that off and I'll go over here and click on nitrogen fixers. I want all the nitrogen fixers, and then I'll get that list. And then once you get the list, maybe I'll, I'll try to do one here uh, real quick. So make it a little more difficult. I have Sandy loamy soil, full sun, and I just want all the nitrogen fixtures for that. Uh, I'm not going to pick, you can also go by family if you know what family you're looking for plants, or if you just want plant type. If the list is too long, you kind of have to do uh, limit it a little more. Okay, I have 33 nitrogen fixing plants that I can use in this ecological state. Pretty good. Uh, many of these might be native. Uh, many of these might be something that's been naturalized, but there's a lot of ways to work with it. So fantastic. I really appreciate that explanation. It really uh, kind of illuminated what you've been working on and how these different structures have been put together. Um, before I let you go, can you tell us a little bit about how our listeners can get in touch with you, the various organizations that you just mentioned, and any courses or uh, services that you'd like to, to educate them about? Sure. So uh, my main website is southwoodscenter.com. That's where um, all my design work is. You can see a lot of the, the work uh, that I've done in the past. Uh, Halsey1.com, H-A-L-S-E, the numeral one.com, is our new education website. And that's where you can find information on advanced permaculture, uh, where we have technical drawing. That's actually the drafting table type permaculture drawing advance that I've done for about nine years teaching that. And then we also have a course coming up in July for uh, Adobe Illustrator for ecological design. And that's also five days. I've taught that a number of times, actually in the Netherlands and the US, a number of times uh, um, in different areas. And that's basically taking our advanced technical drawing and now converting all that process, but understanding how to do it in Adobe Illustrator. And we've found that platform, some people use SketchUp, there's a lot of different software programs. We have found, and I have, to, I have to say, everybody that's taken the class, and you might see a lot of people on Facebook too that have been using it, taught themselves or used my system to learn how to use it, they are all very happy with the quality of the work that you can do with that. It makes it so much easier. It's a very, high po it's a very powerful program, uh, but it also makes it much easier to do the work 
And also now we have libraries of information. So we're all using that same, talk about standardization. If we're all using Adobe Illustrator and saving all those symbols and plant symbols, right? Now that's where we're ah, building you get the, the groundswell. Yeah, everybody yeah. can tap into that database. That's very powerful. Yeah, so we have hundreds and hundreds of plants now. Plant symbols, even symbols for different cars and tractors, buildings, things like that. It makes it easier. So we have our standardized templates. So it makes it, it's already done. Our sector maps, we have a number of those and different styles, but the templates and the symbols just make it every, make it easier to work and faster to work. And now we have this kind of a standardized brand, you might say, of how the information is displayed. And people really like it. It really improves the communication. I have no doubt. I think those things are extremely important to get out to more designers out there because these tools, like you said, are extremely powerful and the potential for collaboration I see as one of the, the biggest advantages of all getting on these similar systems. Um, Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm, more than anything, I'm really looking forward to connecting with you in a couple of weeks when I get back to Minnesota. The, the funny thing about this is I've been following your work for years and I've been living away from where I grew up for such a long time. It's going to be really fun to come full circle and actually visit some of the systems that you're working on there and be able to connect in person. Well, that'd be great, Oliver. I really hope to see you here on your trip and we can do a little tour the farm and uh, look at other things that are going on. And I really appreciate this time and talking to you and having this conversation. Oh, the pleasure's all mine. And for those of you listening, definitely look out in the future uh, for videos we might be able to make with each other when I go to visit Dan and his systems out in Minnesota soon too. So um, yeah, again, thanks so much for taking the time. Let's stay in touch. And I really hope that perhaps we can even do a follow-up interview in the future as more of these things continue to develop. I'm really watching these with a lot of, uh, with a lot of hope and expectation. It's really inspiring. Thank you. I hope so. Thank you very good again for uh, bringing me in. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at abundantedge.com. And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.